Good morning, everyone. My name is Leslie Geist. I recently returned to Manhattan, and it's really good to be back with you all here at Faithy Free. I work with Reach Global, which is the international mission arm of the EFCA, and I'm planning to return to Belgium soon. So, Thanks, Susan. <laughs> this morning, we are going to be reading Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes, purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is God's word. Thanks, Liz. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. I am, uh, I'm especially grateful. Hold on. Here we go. I'm still grateful. I just got to adjust this. There we go. I'm especially grateful this morning for the passage of Scripture that we're, that we're considering. Um, now, it's not all that uncommon for me to be uh, filled with gratitude, for me to, to be filled with gratefulness and thankfulness for what I find in Scripture and the promises and, and just the, the wonderful things God's listed there. I do believe that what's been written down uh, is from God, is the Word of God given to you and me uh, for us to learn about Him and, and get to know Him better, better understand Him, and, and even learn to love Him. But that journey, uh, that process of, of growing in our knowledge of God has its, has its ups and downs, has its highs and lows. There are, are seasons and times where our faith is rich and deep and connected. We feel close to the Lord. And then there are sometimes, and, and sometimes even long and difficult periods, where we struggle with and suffer from doubts. And I mean, let's be honest, sometimes it's hard to believe in the promises of God. Our confidence in Him gets shaken because we look at, look at our lives or look at the world around us and we begin to feel that, that something just doesn't add up, right? I mean, if, if God is who He says He is, 
shouldn't the world be different? Shouldn't it be a better place? We all have hopes and dreams and expectations of what God should be like, and sometimes we allow those to grow into, into assumptions of what God must be like. And that tension between the way we think God ought to be, the way we think He ought to act, and what He ought to be doing, and, and between that and the reality that we have with this fallen, sinful, broken, hurtful world, in that tension, we find uncertainty and confusion, and we go on that path towards doubt. The good news is that our doubt does not surprise God, and it doesn't drive Him away from us either. I'm grateful for these, this passage and these 18 verses because in it we get to see Jesus engage with people that are struggling with their faith, that are struggling with what they are to believe. Some of them bring their doubts before Jesus. Some of them allow their doubts to lead them away. But in, in both scenarios, with all of these people, Jesus offers the same solution. The same affirmation and invitation is given to all who struggle with uncertainty. He tells them, I am the one who is to come. I am God's promised Savior to the world. You can trust me, you can follow me, and you will do right by believing in me. My hope this morning is that whether you came here full of confidence, whether you came in a great season where your faith feels live and vibrant and well, or whether you came here desperate and struggling with doubt, I hope that you will be encouraged and assured that Jesus really is the one. He really is the Savior. And it is good to trust him and to follow him and to believe in him. So let's see what God's word has for us this morning. In Luke 7, in, in verse 18, it, Luke starts out by telling us that John's disciples came and found John and told them about all of these things, all that we have seen in the past couple of weeks from the Gospel of Luke. And calling two of them, John said, he, John sent them to, to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? The John here mentioned in verse 18 is, of course, John the Baptist. And John had spent his entire life, devoted his whole life to getting people ready to meet Jesus. Right? Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we, we find that even before John was born, he's filled with the Holy Spirit in order to perform this, this prophetic preparatory task of readying people to, to know the Messiah. And as he grew up and he became a man, he went out into the wilderness and, and he started this wild ministry where he's preaching and teaching and calling people to change their lives, calling them to repentance, baptizing them in the waters of the Jordan River. John was so influential that people began to wonder, could this guy be the Messiah? Could this be the one we were waiting for? And he was very quick to, to jump on that, to put that out, and he said, no, I, I'm not the one. I'm the one with the honor and the privilege and the responsibility of readying you to meet the one who's coming. And then one day, what had to be one of the most amazing days in John's life, here comes Jesus, and he's, and he's coming to the river, he's coming to the water, and John cries out, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he baptizes Jesus, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus, and a voice booming from heaven says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. John had told people that Jesus would come with power like this, and that when he came, he would change the world forever. 
But John had expected that, that when Jesus came, Israel's enemies would begin to be defeated. He would reform religious institutions that were suffering from corruption. He had all these ideas about how Jesus would change the world. He said Jesus would come with a winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering wheat into the barn and burning chaff with an unquenchable fire. Right, The wheat being the people that were on the side of John and Jesus and God, and the chaff being the people that were against them, like the Roman leaders or, or certain religious leaders of the day. John was a passionate preacher, a passionate supporter of Jesus. Which leaves us with the question, how did John go from this guy who was declaring Jesus to be the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, to the one who was so shaken that he sent some people out to find Jesus to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? <clears throat> the simple answer is things had not gone how John had hoped or thought they would go. In verses 18 and 19, we're told that someone has to come tell John about what Jesus is up to, and then John has to send them back out to find Jesus to ask his question. And that's because at this point in, 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 the, in the story, John's actually in jail. He's in prison. He was in prison for calling out the immoral behavior of one of Israel's leaders. And so that's how John the Baptist, <clears throat> herald of, of, of the Jesus the Messiah, found himself behind walls of stone <clears throat> and bars of iron trying to understand the reports about Jesus' amazing and yet unexpected behavior and ministry. <clears throat> you see, Jesus was surely powerful, right? He was healing the sick. He was freeing those who had demons. He, he was teaching with such power and such influence that, that heads were spinning and, and hearts were turning and burning inside people. He had even raised someone from the dead. And yet, John's question is, why hadn't he done anything yet to, to change the world? Why hadn't Jesus freed Israel? Or at a minimum, for that matter, why hadn't Jesus at least done something to free John? So from the gloom of his cell and through the help of his messengers, John asks Jesus his desperate question, did I get it all right or did I get it all wrong? Can I really trust you? Can I really put my hope in you? Are you the one who is to come or should I start all over? and go look for someone else. Have you ever wanted to ask God a question like that? Because I'll tell you the truth, I absolutely have. I have called out to the Lord at different times in my life, <clears throat> wondering about my circumstances, wondering about my struggles and my doubts. I've looked around me and wondered, is Jesus really here at work doing things in my life or on this earth? Is he really... Is he really active as, as, I, as I hope he is, as I want him to be, do I need to start believing in someone or something else? Is it really safe for me to put my trust in Jesus? What I want you all to be sure that you notice is how Jesus responds to John's question. All right, he doesn't get angry, and he doesn't write John off. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't, turn, he doesn't take offense and turn his back on his struggling, weary, disheartened friend. Instead, he sends John's messengers back with both an answer of evidence and invitation. He tells John, look at all I've done, look at all I'm doing, and trust me. At that very time, <clears throat> Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone 
who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus, in, in this moment where John and his disciples needed it most, started putting his power on display, right? He started doing all these incredibly compassionate, amazing miracles. And then he specifically tells these messengers to go back to John and tell them what they've seen and heard, packing his response with an overwhelming tidal wave of prophetic fulfillment of the promises that the Messiah would be able to do from the book of Isaiah. Everything Jesus lists here, you can find as things that Isaiah long before Jesus came to the world, would say, this is what the Messiah would be capable of doing. This is what will show you he is the one. And so Jesus is putting his answer to this question on display, and the answer is crystal clear, yes, I am the one who is to come. I am the Savior. John, you need to look for no other. I'm the one, John, and I indeed am the one that the world has been waiting for. But what I want to draw your attention most to is what Jesus says in verse 23, where he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's a direct reference to, to a passage from Isaiah chapter 8. And in that passage, God tells the prophet Isaiah not to stumble or not to follow, not to, not to allow himself to follow the ways and the opinions of the ones who reject God, but instead remind, reminds Isaiah of his promises. And he said, and God says to him, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. And in response to this reminder, to this invitation to remember what is true and good and wonderful about God, Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. I will wait for the Lord and I will put my trust in him. Jesus tells John, He tells John, look, I know what I'm doing, and I know the way I'm going about my work and the things that I'm doing, it wasn't what you expected, and it wasn't what you had planned for, and it doesn't make sense, but I need you to remember that I am the one. I am one with the Father Almighty. I am one with the Holy Spirit. We've got a plan, and I need you to trust me. It's the same message, the same invitation is offered to us as well. You may not understand what God's up to. Chances are pretty good. There are going to be a lot of days where you don't understand what God's up to. You may look around at this life, at the, wor- at the circumstances of your life or what's going on in the world, and you may say that this is not what I had expected when I heard about God or when I made my decision to follow him. You may want to ask, are you the, really the one or do I need to look for another? John was told to look at the evidence of Christ's life. Look look at what Jesus had been doing, what he was up to, and we are told something similar. We too should look at the evidence of Jesus being active in our life. We should look for when we, or remember when we have felt his presence or when we have seen him at work, uh, when we have had people come alongside us in Christ-like love and encourage us and, and be with us, come alongside us, even in those hard and difficult moments. Or perhaps we've experienced something miraculous in our life, something that can only be explained by the, by the amazing almighty power of God. All of these and more are given to us so that we may remember and in remembering be assured of God's concern and care for us. But we also have something far greater and amazing to consider, far greater than anything John could have ever fathomed or imagined or wished for, because we have the completed work of Christ to go and reflect on and read about and consider and weigh in our hearts. The gospel is Jesus' invitation to see his life and his death and his resurrection as the fulfillment of all that was promised. The reason to trust Jesus with our lives is this message, this gospel. 
And so, and so the scripture offers you this question, are you willing to come to Jesus with your doubt? And if you do, will you consider the evidence of his love for you, his life sacrificed for you, and his salvation made available to you through his resurrection if you trust him? Jesus is the one who has come. He is the Savior. And his response to your doubt is an invitation to please, please trust him. After John's disciples leave, Jesus then turns to the crowds that are gathered with him. And many in the crowd were were people that had known John the Baptist. They had gone out to see his ministry. They were like, I got to see this guy. So they trekked out into the Judean wilderness and and, and looked at him and and, and listened to him and were impressed by his his preaching or were moved by his conviction. And, And Jesus takes a moment to affirm to them that it was good that they had gone out and they had found John and listened to him. In verse 24, it says, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. It said, what did you do? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there are none greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John wasn't a senseless hermit, and he wasn't a man of earthly power or prestige. He was, according to John, the greatest man to have walked the earth, and a prophet specifically commissioned to get the people ready for the coming of the Messiah. John prepared the way. He got the hearts and souls of folks ready to meet Jesus. And yet I have to imagine, as these people considered what John was up to now and, and, and where he was, that they were beginning to wonder, well, what exactly is next? All right, and they kind of figured out that Jesus seemed to be the next man up in this scenario. John's in prison, so they got to find somebody else to, to start listening to and, and follow. And, and so they, they know about Jesus, and they're impressed by him, but they're not quite sure what to do next. But Jesus makes it clear in verse 28. He says, listen, on, on earth there was no one greater than John the Baptist, but the time to follow John has come to an end. Now is the time to take the next steps and to enter into the kingdom of God. It was time to follow Jesus. And one of the things we struggle with these days is, is this tendency, this, this compulsion to dabble in, in competing things that might be true or, or take in a bunch of different ideas of things that we could try to try to find truth. All right, we take Christianity and we mix in a little, a little dash of self-help or, or self-improvement. We toss in some wisdom from, from social media influencers, social media influencers or, or modern, modern philosophers or skeptics or deconstructionists or men and women from other religions and, and who say nice things, and, and it's all so good. And, and we take it and we put it in one big pot, and in the end, what we have is this jumbled, directionless, powerless mess. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe that we we can and we should listen to and learn from and have great conversations with people who, from different walks of life than our own and who think differently than us and even who come from different spiritual backgrounds. But I also believe that when all is said and done, if Jesus really is the one who has come into the world to save us and bring us into the internal presence of God, then he is the one that we must commit ourselves to following wholly and completely. There can be no other. Jesus will not share space in your heart with any rival. 
There is no wisdom on earth, no person you can follow, no achievement you can reach, no greatness you can attain that even comes close to the goodness and the greatness and the absolute wonder of being in the presence of God and in the kingdom of God. There is nothing that competes with it. Nothing compares. And we're told again and again in no uncertain terms that there is one way to enter into this glorious kingdom. It is through Jesus, the one who has come. The invitation is that we must go and follow him. The last group that Jesus addresses in this passage are those who, who had considered Jesus, who had looked at the evidence and said, you know what, it's not enough. It's not right. It's, it's too far beyond our expectations. He did, Jesus didn't play by their rules. He didn't dance to their tune. So instead of turning to him, of trusting him, of following him, they reject him. And the results of that rejection, are, Jesus says, are, are shocking. <clears throat> in verse 29, it says, All of the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that, that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. The ones who have the hardest time, the hardest time understanding who Jesus is, are the ones that should have been the most ready to receive him. The Pharisees and the experts of the law were the religious professionals of the day. It was their job, it was their day-to-day gig to ponder the mysteries of God and to ready themselves for the coming Messiah. And yet what Luke tells us is it's the imperfect people, all right, the sinful, the immoral, the traitorous tax collectors who acknowledge that God's way was right. And just to be clear, if you happen to be a tax collector, if that happens to be your job, that's okay. Like, there was a lot going on here that, that, that there's a reason they keep getting grouped with these, these you know, the, the sinful people. Um, but it's these people that accepted the challenge of repentance that, that John offered in his baptism and listened to Jesus' invitation to trust and follow him. All right, meanwhile, the Pharisees and the experts of the law, too concerned with what their expectations for what the Messiah had to be to fit what they wanted, they rejected God's purpose for their lives. By refusing to believe in Jesus, they missed out on the very thing, the very one that could have given them purpose and righteousness and life abundantly. Jesus compares this generation to little children sitting in a marketplace and heckling those that won't play their games with them. Right? John the Baptist came with purpose and piety, and they accused him of having a demon, of being demon-possessed. And then Jesus came with, with lighthearted and lightheartedness and loving and welcoming, and they called him a glutton and irreligious, and the sort of person who became friends with the worst sort of people. This generation, these people, they decided to embrace and follow their doubt because Jesus just didn't fit what they wanted out of a Savior. He wasn't right. He wasn't enough. They wanted a conqueror. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted someone who had more than Jesus had to offer. But there is nothing, there is nothing on heaven or on earth greater than what Jesus has to offer. You can do no better. You can be no more right than to trust him and to follow him and to believe him. So this week, as, as, as you move forward, considering this passage, as, as you reflect back on it, I would encourage you to consider a few questions. The first is this, what is one promise from God? 
What is one promise from God that you can choose to trust this week? What does he say is true about himself or true about you or true about your circumstances that you need to accept based on his evidence and his invitation and and in faith? What is one promise from God that you can choose to trust this week? What is one way you can follow him more closely, either taking up a new practice or humbly letting go of something that that stands between you and a closer relationship with the Lord? What is one way that you can practice something, that you can take on something that moves you closer and further down the road of following him? And finally, what might it take? What might it take for you to believe, either for the first time or as a reaffirmation, that Jesus really is the one? that he really is the Savior, that he he really did come in love to save you. What might it take for you to believe, either for the first time or as a reaffirmation, that Jesus really is the one? He is the Savior, and I hope you'll take seriously and gladly and accept joyfully his invitation to trust him and to follow him and to live rightly with him. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, these words, this message, your promise that you are the one, you are the Savior, there is none like you, there is no one else we need to look for, and your invitation, Lord, of coming to trust you and follow you, and believe in you, Lord, that is, that is what we need to do. Father, no matter which area that we struggle with most, which, no matter what doubt we have in, in this process of, of coming to you and, and trusting you and following you and, and believing in you. Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts to, to, to soften us to your invitation and that in accepting, we would, we would be amazed at the invitation to the kingdom of God and we would cherish it. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.